If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 20. As I said in the announcements, today we're going to be taking a look at uh, verses uh, that we wouldn't normally be looking at. Uh, we're going to be looking at them specifically because I wanted to talk about the uh, very important uh, subject of his hospitality. Um, now, it, it occurs to me that in speaking on hospitality, it would be a good idea, especially in the modern setting, to, to answer the question, what is hospitality, uh, to answer it. So I'm going to go back to my preferred source of all definitions. I think if we had stopped the uh, dictionary at the point of which I'm about to suggest, which was 1828, Webster's 1828 edition, and said, that's enough for America, and moved on, uh, never adding uh, other words, that things would have been great. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. But nonetheless, I'm going to uh, give you the, the definition of hospitality taken from Webster's. And, and in all seriousness, one of the reasons why I love Webster's is because his definitions are so intensely biblical. Often, he will actually quote from the Bible uh, in giving his example sentence. But uh, in answer to what is hospitality, Webster wrote, hospitality, noun, Latin hospitalitas. The act or practice of receiving and entertaining strangers or guests without reward or with kind and generous liberality. Webster also tells us that someone who is hospitable is, quote, inviting to strangers, offering kind reception, indicating hospitality. Now, perhaps some of you are saying, well, that's all right, Pastor. Hospitality may be good for some Christians, but that's not me. Um, but I have to tell you, for the Christian, hospitality is not optional. I want to give you two verses where that becomes absolutely clear. 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then Romans 12, verses 10 through 13, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, <laughs> patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And hopefully today we will have an opportunity to see why it is so critical for the growth of, of the kingdom that we be hospitable. But uh, let's read the word of God in 1 Corinthians, specifically starting with verse 13. And then we'll ask the Lord to bless it to our understanding. There Paul writes, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such, and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, we ask now, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word and not merely understand it in an objective arm's length sense, but rather that we would take it into our hearts and not only understand it, but live it out make it part of our very existence. 
Help us to be a people who show hospitality in the way that the examples that you set before us showed hospitality. And help us to learn how critical this is to the growth of your kingdom and of your sovereign word in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Uh, a little while ago, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Bon Clark, and uh, this time it was for business rather than uh, for pleasure or for retreat or anything like that. Bon Clark, incidentally, is the ARP Retreat Center uh, in Flat Rock, North Carolina. It's absolutely beautiful. If you haven't been there yet, you should avail yourself of it. Um, members of the ARP uh, can go there. Ordinary people who aren't members of the ARP church, I shouldn't put it that way, ordinary people can as well, as opposed to the peculiar people of the ARP. Um, but everybody is uh, able to go and stay there during the season. It's just a, uh, it's a great place. I was there, though, for an ONA meeting. ONA is Outreach North America. It is our church planting and our church revitalization agency, and we were plotting uh, how ONA should proceed in the coming year and use the resources that are available to them. Now, as I said, ONA has two parts. There's church planting, and then there are, is that revitalization. Revitalization is the attempt to bring new life to churches that are manifestly dying. There are some uh, churches that are very healthy and vigorous. Uh, there are churches that have a median age that's... Uh, um, in the 40s or so, that would be a very healthy church within the ARP. But unfortunately, there are many congregations, particularly rural congregations, mountain <laughs> congregations, where the average age is around 68 or 70. I am not joking. And uh, literally, these, these congregations are dying out. Sometimes they have shrunk to the point where they can no longer afford to pay a pastor. And so they depend upon occasional pulpit uh, services being made by either retired pastors or students and so on, but no regular pastoral ministry. And one of the things that often happens is that they don't realize the state that they are in. Now, it, it would seem to us obvious that when a church is shrinking every year, when its membership is dying off, do excuse me, and getting smaller and smaller, that... The, the church should be alarmed. But many of these churches are actually kind of sleepy in that situation. Others recognize, yes, we're shrinking, but they cannot figure out why that is, why they are getting smaller and smaller. And so what ONA will often do is they'll send people out to, uh, to meet with the session if there's still a session left and to uh, give suggestions or even to appoint somebody uh, to revitalize the church, a pastor to come in and to attempt that, that work of refounding almost the church and putting them in the right direction. But as people go and assess these congregations, and we were receiving uh, reports back from them, they find out very quickly that one of the major reasons is that there is a critical lack of hospitality within these congregations. And they don't even realize that they they aren't manifesting that hospitality, that they don't have it. Now, these congregations are, generally speaking, very polite. But there is a difference between being merely polite and being hospitable. You all know when somebody is being polite to you, when they are being nice to you. And it's a very different feeling from when somebody is being genuinely warm and welcoming. They're very happy to have you there, and you get the sense they would like to see you again, that you are important to them, and so on. 
Let me give you an illustration, though, of how this works out in the lives of, of these uh, older churches. I'm going to use the example of a, of a PCA church. Uh, a friend of mine was called to pastor a PCA church uh, in Texas, uh, and he was hesitant to take the call because he, rec- he, he knew that they were dying. Uh, most of the, uh, the children of the church had grown up and moved away. Uh, there was no fear of being interrupted by a baby crying, for instance, during the services. They were dead quiet, and uh, he, he found that very unsettling. Uh, he recognized that the, if this church was going to survive, they needed to bring people in. And he knew that even if they could attract visitors, they would need to be hospitable to those who were coming in from the outside. So he told me that when he was meeting with the pulpit committee and determining whether or not he would accept their call, he he said he opened up the Bible to Hebrews 13.2, and he read to the pulpit committee what it says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And he said, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to entertain strangers within this church? And everybody looked at him and they nodded enthusiastically and they said, oh yes, oh yes, we are very enthusiastic about the idea of entertaining strangers within this church. But after a year of watching new people coming in and then leaving very quickly, he said that... Unfortunately, he found out they were polite to people who were coming in from the outside, but but not hospitable. He noticed that none of the visitors, for instance, were being invited to lunch after the service. Uh, There was no evangelizing taking place. The people were not getting outside of their comfort zone at all. He said, I realized then, Andy, that the stranger that they had been thinking of when I said, are you willing to entertain strangers, that they had in their mind a certain number of people. They were thinking, for instance, of the Masonic Lodge brother who they've been going to the lodge with for years and years and years, but who doesn't have a church. They're very willing to have him come. Or they were thinking of the the other lady in the knitting circle who is upset that her United Methodist Church has become very, very liberal. They would be very eager to have her come as well. But when he said stranger, they were not thinking of people they had never met before in their entire lives. Certainly not. not. Not the people, for instance, that you appear to have no affinities with. No commonalities who are from an entirely different demographic or age group. They are strange. And certainly, certainly, he said, not the really strange strangers. They're not what they're thinking of when they think strangers and being hospitable to them. They're people within the comfort zone that they would wish would come closer and would actually attend the church. But brothers and sisters... That is not what it means to entertain strangers. And that certainly is not what was going on in the early church. That is not what Paul, for instance, is writing about. It's not what happened when the church was initially being built up. Brothers and sisters, the willingness to open up your own house to those whom you have never met before, to welcome them in and to treat them like family, that was something that marked the church in the apostolic age and was a key to their growth. They honestly desired to have fellowship with these people in Christ. They desired to introduce them to the Savior who had adopted them into their family and make them members of their family as well. 
So I want to look at two of the people who Paul mentioned in these verses in 1 Corinthians 16. One of them, obviously, is Stephanus. Stephanus and his household we should take a look at. And then I want to look at Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila. First, let's, let's talk about this fellow, Stephanus. He said, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. What does he mean by the first fruits of Achaia? Well, the, the household of Stephanus, Stephanus and his household were some of the first people who were converted when he came into Greece. Paul knows that the Corinthians are, are fully acquainted with the household of Stephanus. It was a, he was a key central figure within their congregations. Now, Paul had already mentioned Stephanus earlier on in this letter uh, and his household in the beginning of the letter, saying that, uh, that Stephanus was one of the few people that he had actually baptized. He had baptized him and all who belonged to his family. Incidentally, here we see a household baptism, something that was regular in the church, not just uh, individuals who had made their own profession, but fathers, mothers, their children, and then the household being brought in. Paul calls Stephanus and his household, as I said, the first fruits. And uh, that comes from the Old Testament term used for the first years of grain that were reaped, as a, and they were given as a gift to God, uh, a thanks offering for what he had done for them. And when Paul uses it, he says, in essence, Christ has reaped these as the first fruits of the harvest, and he brought in a bountiful harvest after that. For Paul, uh, the household of, of Stephanus in Corinth were the mark of the beginning of Christ's work in that particular location. Uh, the first fruits of these missions to the Gentiles, the spreading of the gospel beyond the, ground, uh, the bounds even of Samaria, a people who were semi-Jewish, who knew the Old Testament scriptures to a certain degree, now going out to Europe to places that were truly strange to Jews. And truly, there was nobody stranger to a Jew than the Gentiles. They were people who were essentially cut off. There was a wall of separation between them ceremonially, and that wall had been brought down. But it was still very difficult, obviously, to move from one culture to another. It's very difficult to, to integrate wildly differing customs, cultures, languages, accents, and so on. One of the things that I, I really enjoyed, I, I love accents, they're, uh, uh, they're one of my, my favorites, and I always try to, and it's terribly politically incorrect, gradually master the accents of the people that I'm with. But I, I found out uh, in preaching in Africa when I went over with TCWM, for instance, Africans, when they speak English, are incredibly careful to enunciate every word they speak. It comes out very clearly. And so, I realized that when I string, the way that I speak, having been raised first in England, then in the northeastern United States, I string everything together very quickly, and they're looking at me like, I don't understand the word you're saying. <laughs> you know, because all of the words are, are just bunched up together from their point of view. So I realized that if I was going to teach the gospel in the midst of their culture, I needed to make certain changes. Those things have to happen in order for us to carry the gospel outwards. We have to be willing to make accommodations for strangers. And in this case, I was the stranger in their midst. And they received me. Although I, I, I said to my wife, uh, an American political liberal listening to me by the end of the class would have been appalled because you know I was doing essentially an, uh, an 
an imitation of an African speaker. But uh, nonetheless, it was something that needed to happen. We need to be willing to get outside of our comfort zone and do things that we wouldn't normally do. Now, there are certain accommodations that cannot be made in carrying the gospel across. For instance, if we go to a people who normally walk about naked, we should not strip down ourselves and say, when in Rome, you know, that is not an accommodation that should happen. We should never cross the barriers of morality. We should never also dumb down the gospel or change it so significantly to meet a culture and the way that they think that it ceases to be the gospel. We may make it intelligible through application and so on, but we may not change the essential gospel because the gospel is what changes us. The gospel is what changes everything. One of the things that I said while I was over there, while I was ministering, there was a phrase that kept coming up, this is Africa, you can't do certain things even though they're gospel imperatives. And I I told the the story of England and what kind of a godless place England was was when it was uh, pre-Christian how it had its druids. And I said, you have your problems with the witch doctors. Well, we had druids who burned people in wicker cages. Christianity hugely changed British culture, absolutely changed it. It is something that changes hearts, changes inclinations, changes entire cultures and people groups. And therefore, we should let it do its work. Stephanus after he was converted, of course, devoted himself to the ministry of the saints. That's one of the things that happens in the heart that's been changed by Christ. We become devoted to his imperatives, no longer ours. His agenda becomes our agenda. We are willing to say, as Christ said in the garden to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. And we begin to do gratefully, lovingly, eagerly, what it is that he wants us to do. Well, Stephanus and his household devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And the KJV version, the old version, is addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. From the very outset, Stephanus and his family took it upon themselves to be ministering to the spiritual needs of the Corinthians who were coming in, who were becoming Christians. And so they were addicted to this service. It was at the very beginning. An addiction, of, of course, is something that captivates you. There are bad addictions. We talk about drug addictions, alcohol addictions, pornography addictions. These are things where your heart is captivated by things that destroy you and they increase death and, and unhappiness. But to be addicted to the service of the saints, to be addicted to serving Christ in the midst of his church, this is an addiction we should all have. I wish that was something we were jonesing for every morning. I can't wake up without being addicted to the, the ministry of the saints. I got to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. Can't turn away from it. He gives this addiction to those who, whose hearts are truly indwelt by him. And would that we all had such an addiction. This work was to serve God's people. And they volunteered their services, and they were blessed with organizational talent, and they did all of this arduous work that developing a church requires. Because I have to tell you, starting a church is hard work. It is some of the hardest work I ever encountered in my entire life. I thought I'd I'd, I'd experienced hard work working in the computing industry. For instance, uh, as a systems administrator, I was routinely called in on Saturdays at you know, 3 in the morning in order to do the patches and, and things like that. 
I was constantly at everyone's beck and call when something went wrong or when they didn't understand what was going on. But it was nothing compared to what I encountered after I went to seminary and entered the ministry and came down here to plant a church. When I came down here, I had a full head of hair. I was young and vigorous and, and so on. And I burned the candle at both ends in planting the church. It was hard work. That was what Stephanus and his family did. They were living out what Jesus had said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so what is Paul doing? He's setting before the Corinthian congregation, a congregation that was messed up in so many different ways, disordered, grumbling. They were biting and tearing at one another. They had allowed people who were sexually immoral to come into the congregation and were simply winking at that kind of thing. They were becoming more and more Corinthian in everything that they did and they said, and at the same time offending even Corinthian sensibilities in their antinomian, that is their lawless behavior. But he sets before them Stephanus and his household, and he says, these are the people you should emulate, and these are the people you should serve in your midst. Serve the servants of God, he says. They didn't appoint themselves. They became examples in lowly service. We don't know whether they held positions, officer positions within the church, but they were certainly diokonia, that is, deacons, servants within the church. Everybody wants a title and so on. The, the people, though, who are willing to serve without a title, oh, my, that's, that's a person who is humble and whose heart is following the example of Christ, who, though he is the Lord of glory, was meek and humble when he came to serve us. So we have the example of Stephanus and his family who were literally poured out on the congregation. And then we have the example of Priscilla and Aquila, two of Paul's best friends and helpers in ministry. Not only did Priscilla and Aquila take in Paul when he arrived in Corinth, when he was a stranger to them, and not only did they help him to preach the gospel there, but we read that they went on to host a congregation in their house. And then they traveled with him when he went to Ephesus to plant churches there. They went on with him and again they had a church in their house. A congregation they hosted within their home. You have to be open to strangers in a very deliberate and a very loving way when you have a house church. When there's a church in your own home. They had people coming in on a regular basis, they serve their needs and they preach the gospel to them. And so they did the same thing once again when they went to Rome as well. Paul writes in Romans 16.3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. Here we have an example of a couple who were absolutely dedicated to serving the Lord. And because they were dedicated to serving the Lord, they were dedicated to serving his people, taking all of the resources that God had given them and using them specifically for the advancing of Christ's agenda, of Christ's kingdom. And they did this out of love, not only to Christ, but love to their fellow men. It is not loving to let people stumble on in darkness and die and then go to hell. That is not love. 
If we love someone, what will we do? We'll do everything that we can to introduce them to our Savior, the one who saved us, the one whom we love, whom we should be talking about all the time. If we call ourselves Christians, it means that Christ is at the center of our lives. What should we be talking about? Who's, who should we be boasting in? It should be Jesus Christ. But this willingness that Priscilla and Aquila had was not something odd and individual and, and, and only them. Uh, it was something that marked the early church. It marked these apostolic churches before this, this change occurred in the medieval period where uh, being hospitable became a professional thing. It became somebody else's duty. Well, yes, of course, the clergy, they have to be hospitable but not us any longer. But in the apostolic church, it was something that every member did. House churches, and this is Simon Kistemacher writing, it's an extended quote, but it's worthwhile. House churches were not uncommon at all, Paul adds, and to the church in your house, since in the first and second centuries, church buildings, in the sense in which we think of them today, were as yet not available. Families would hold services in their own homes. Such services would be attended by the members of the household, father, mother, children, servants. If the house was large enough to accommodate others, they too were invited. The early church numbered many hospitable members, ready and eager to offer their facilities and their homes for religious purposes. Thus, in Jerusalem, many were gathered together and were praying in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Lydia graciously invited Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke to use her home as their headquarters. Wherever Aquila and Priscilla went, they would, if at all possible, welcome the worshipers to their home. Hence, both at Ephesus and at Rome, there was a church in their house. Laodicea, too, had its own house church. See, uh, you can find out about that in Colossians 4.15. So did Corinth at the home of Gaius. If the number of believers in any town was small, one house church might be sufficient. If large or widely separated, more than one would be necessary. So it is not surprising that Philemon, too, had shown similar hospitality, since the membership of the Colossian church was probably small numerically. It is entirely possible that the entire congregation gathered for worship in his home. So where did the congregations meet and gather? They met not in purpose-built buildings. We're grateful to God that he's provided us with this building. Where did they meet originally? They met in house churches, just as many of your brothers and sisters to this day meet in churches and people's homes because they're not allowed in the countries where they are to have purpose-built church buildings. So when Paul comes to Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla welcome him in. And they become the nucleus of the Corinthian church. They opened their home to fellow believers and they founded a church. And that has been going on year after year since the first century. It probably helped that they made tents. Uh, they needed a lot of space for that. So uh, the, uh, uh, their, their house was probably much larger and able to accommodate people. But there was that great desire. It's not an easy thing to have people coming in and out of your house on a regular basis. And when I say a regular basis, I mean all the time when it comes to the house churches within the apostolic period. Now, as I said, that goes on. The church, that is the congregation, not the building. Remember, this is the building we assemble in. But you guys are the church. The church that eventually became Providence ARP started in our living room and it started in the living rooms of other people who were brought into the church. They welcomed them in. 
In some cases, literal strangers. I still remember the day we were having an evangelistic Bible study. The doorbell rang and there was this young girl nobody had ever met before standing there saying, is this the Bible study? She was welcomed in. She eventually became a member of our church. Eventually ended up, we we ended up calling her fifth child after a while. (laughs) The accommodating got to the point where she would walk in and just kind of basically collapse on the sofa and be like, you got any food? Um, She became part of our family. Why? Because we loved Christ. And as a result, we loved the people that he was bringing in. That's really how we got started. And it's a reminder to us, friends, brothers, sisters, it's a reminder to us the church is not a social club. The church is not a VFW. It is not a reading circle. It is not a softball league. It is not a political adjunct. It is the assembly of God's people called together, called out of the world, and called to work together to extend the kingdom throughout the world. And a church that isn't preaching the gospel and drawing people in and welcoming the strangers in that is roughly as useful as a fishing boat that never leaves the harbor and never drops its nets. The fishing boat may be pretty. It may be well crewed. It may be highly polished, it may be spick and span, but that fishing boat is still not doing what it was made for. In that sense, understand this, it is more useless than the grubbiest, dirtiest, most poorly crewed fishing boat in the harbor that leaves every morning and goes out and actually catches fish. We need to emphasize That a church that is not preaching the gospel, that is not involved in the harvest, that is not actively seeking to extend the kingdom and bring in those who are lost and dying, is not doing what the church was built by Christ for. If we are not making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, then the church is not doing what Jesus has sent it to do until he returns. And so therefore, that must be first and foremost on every church's agenda. And you can have all sorts of activities. You can counsel people. But if you aren't ultimately bringing in the lost and building them up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you aren't doing what the church needs to be doing. One of the things that we've said, though, and and I I actually stood up and made this point, one of the problems that we have is that many of our churches don't need to be revitalized. That is ARP churches. They need to be vitalized. They need life. The problem that we have so often is that we try to create life where there is no life present already, and that's impossible. We can't do that ourselves. That means somebody has to go in and preach the gospel and bring bring the light and the life of Christ in in the first place. But if we have that, then it should be the case that we are taking the life that we have and passing it on. And that we are eager to bring in strangers, that we are are eager to to, uh, be constantly serving those who we meet for the first time. Because we remember who saved us. We remember that we were once strangers. We were once orphans. We were once aliens to the covenant. But Christ brought us near. And he clothed us. And we're no longer beggars and orphans. We're princes royal. And therefore we need to share the gold that he has given to us. 
Now, I want to make two points about this, this vital uh, hospitality that we're supposed to be showing. Two applications to you guys. First, this hospitality is key to the extension of the church. It is key to its growth. One of the things that the session is discussing is the idea of planting a church in Rayford. We want to plant churches all around this area so we can get the gospel out as much as possible. But in doing that, we're going to need a nucleus. Uh, people like Aquila and Priscilla who are willing to open up their house, who are willing to be hospitable, to welcome in the strangers, people with whom they would have no natural affinity and share the gospel with them. Our ability to plant churches will depend not just on our finding a, a, a good pastor. One of the things that we also discussed at the ONA meeting was the, the, the fact that you can have the most dynamic young man who's charismatic and so on and who speaks very well and yet him fail utterly to plant a church simply because there isn't a nucleus of believers who are sharing. One of the things that... Okay, it, it hurts my pride. It's a bittersweet recollection, if I put it that way. Um, one of the things I, I, I used to do all the time was when people were joining the church, I would ask them, what was it that led you to come here? And of course, I was hoping to, to hear, you know, the dynamic young pastor who preaches so well, you know, just captivated <laughs> us with his messages. Of... No, no. The Lord dealt with my heart very well in that. Uh, it would be like, well, there was this family. And the first time we came, they invited us back to their house. And we were there for like two hours. And then we were like, wow, look at the time. And that happened again the next week. And after a while, it was like, why would we be anywhere else on a Sunday? These people loved us. My wife and I, when we went to Pennsylvania to, for me to go to, uh, to seminary, uh, we went to some places where there was excellent preaching. I mean, pastors who, who were, at the time, there was this device called the radio, before podcasting, and these guys were on that particular device. They were on the radio. They were well-known. We went to their churches, and it was like The Sixth Sense, another old movie reference. Um, but we would walk in, and we'd be like, honey, did we die on the way here, and we just don't know it? Can these people actually see us? And I'm not joking. There were several very large churches we went to where our presence wasn't even acknowledged the whole time. So yeah, the, the sermon was correct. The worship was biblical, but there was no family sense. There was no hospitality. We didn't stay. Then we went to a little Korean-American church in a place called Hatboro, and the moment we came in, the people were like, <laughs> you know, they're like, I, have you ever been met at the door by your dog after it hasn't seen you for two days, and it's the dog that loves you and loves you and loves you? I thought you'd never come back. You're so good. <laughs> <laughs> jumping all over. It was like, you know, the congregation was like that with us. They didn't jump on us, but the, it was, I'm overstating, it's hyperbole. But they were loving. They, they loved strangers. And then they, they said, you must come and eat with us. They took us downstairs, and they gave us incredibly good Korean food. And, and the preaching was also great. And it was just, it was like being in an apostolic church in many, many senses. And we went back there, and it was some of the best years of our life because they loved us and we grew. That's what we need to be. That's how the church is extended. We incorporate people into the family of God. 
It's not going to be gimmickry. It's not going to be these things that, that take people from death to life, darkness to light. It's going to be the love of Christ expressed not just by the pastor and his family. I've got to tell you, we, we love to invite people over, but it's far less impressive when the pastor invites somebody over than when families, ordinary families, invite people into their homes. So that's the first thing. It's key to the extension of the church. Secondly, and this is a very important point, hospitality will soon be a key once again to the existence of the church. Now, we already know this. The norm is that the church is persecuted throughout the world. In two-thirds of the world's nations, the church is persecuted. And yet, they are still hospitable. And that's how they are still growing. Above-ground churches like this one, are are not possible in many of the world's nations. And in China, amongst other nations, they they have a two-tiered kind of church structure. They have the three self-churches that are the government-approved ones that essentially preach and, and teach whatever the Communist Party wants them to. And then they have the real churches. Those are the house churches. I know members of those house churches. They're raided on a regular basis by the government. They're constantly being persecuted, and yet they're constantly growing. Why? Because they have the gospel, and they have the love of Christ. Well, I know it doesn't seem possible that we would be in that situation someday ourselves, but I have to tell you it's coming at us like a freight train. We are rapidly approaching a point where we will have a two-tiered church structure within this country. There's legislation that is currently moving through Congress right now that will create that two-tiered system. What does it do? It says that those who will not bow the knee to Caesar's reinterpretation of marriage and particularly to accept gay marriage will no longer have any sort of tax relief. You can't be tax exempt. You will have to be treated as a private business. And that's not just going to apply to businesses and colleges and schools and so on. It will be applied eventually to churches as well. If we preach a message that they call hateful and bigoted, which is simply the biblical gospel, then we will eventually be forced to go underground. They will make it financially prohibitive for us to exist in the way that we do. And trust me, most churches cannot pay business taxes. They can't pay business property taxes at all three different levels. It's just not possible. They will go under in that sense, but that doesn't mean that they'll be extinguished. What will happen? We'll have to transition simply back to the way it was, meeting in people's homes. They can get rid of our buildings. They can destroy the pastor's salary. They can close down our schools in terms of the the schools that meet in in particular buildings, but they can't get rid of the church. Nothing can get rid of the church because you're the church. Christ and him crucified will be proclaimed in this world no matter what Satan and the world and the flesh try to do to stop it till the end of time. But we have to be ready if we need to, to be able to meet in people's houses once again. And continue to worship the Lord below ground. Now, I know for a lot of people that's not an appealing prospect. But if we are so used to hospitality, so used to being in people's homes already, if we love one another so much that we're already welcoming not just the members of the church, but those from the outside in, it won't be a painful transition at all in many senses. And it's not something that we should fear. Brothers and sisters... We are a people who have been called to exercise hospitality in building up the church. And we need to continue to do that. We need to remember that we are going to be calling people in and inviting them to worship. 
Missions exist because worship doesn't, as John Piper has put it so very well. So we need to be about that particular mission. And then it may be that we will continue, and I hope this is the case, to reflect that church in the apostolic age. After Peter preached, you remember, on the day of Pentecost, and this was long before every cathedral, basilica, and purpose-built church building had been built, we read this describing the apostolic church. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave, uh, I'm going to finish on this. In Acts chapter 2, 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. May that be said of us, that the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Let's continue to work, whether it be in this building or in our homes or wherever, for that end. Let's go before the Lord now. God our Father, help us not to fear what is to come but help us instead to exercise that hospitality, that grace that you've shown to us. Help us to reflect the love of Christ in all that we do. Help us to go to the least of these. Help us to go to the unloved, the truly strange stranger, to be willing to open up our homes to those whom we don't know, to invite them in and to show them the, a reflection, a mere reflection of the love that you showed to us. Lord, we know we'll never be able to express the love of Christ unless it's dwelling in our hearts. So we pray, Lord, that you would put it there. And if there is someone here today who has not yet met with Christ, we pray, Lord, this would be the day of salvation. This would be the day that they close with him and they desire to be his in every sense of the word. Oh, Lord, may you work through us. And may that day when Christ returns and the church is all together forever, may that day come soon. And we pray this in Jesus' 